Welcome once more to the second wave of quarantine evidence-based radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website Evidence-Based Errata. Before we get started tonight, um, I just wanted to address, because I was just thinking about it, the idea that I'm still recording this from quarantine, uh, so to speak, obviously. And um, yeah, I know that theoretically I have now had COVID and it quote unquote wasn't that bad. And so it's the possibility that I could, uh, like many other people, start to resume my normal life and record this live. And I hope that you will continue to indulge me for recording it earlier, usually earlier in the day. Um, so I'm still getting as much of the news as I can uh, for this particular week, even though I often uh, have to go back for stories that just didn't get put in initially. And I think that given the numbers and how few people are getting the second booster and the fact that it is going to once again be the cold season, I just don't feel comfortable yet. And I'm still going to be wearing my mask in grocery stores and things like that. And um, I hope that you have found that this is uh, not a tremendous downgrade from the live uh, tapings. And so, um, yeah. All right. Anyways, that's all for that tonight. Let's start with the great news that the DART project was basically a complete success. There's still a lot of data to crunch, but it definitely did what it was trying to do. And in fact, it was actually more successful than the NASA team team had expected it to be. Prior to the arrival of the DART craft, the asteroid Dimorphos orbited around another asteroid called Didymos. Its orbital period was 11 hours and 55 minutes. And that was until NASA's DART spacecraft slammed into it at 14,000 miles per hour. For the first time ever, humanity has changed the orbit of a planetary body, said Lori Glaze, director of the Planetary Science Division at NASA headquarters in Washington at a press conference revealing the results. The team had hoped for around a 10-minute difference in order to declare the mission a success, noted NASA head Bill Nelson. But what they actually got was an astonishing 32 minutes. Dimorphos now takes 11 hours and 23 minutes to complete an orbital period. The impact was monitored and photographed by several means, including a camera aboard the dark craft called Draco, which was destroyed with the craft, as well as by Lycia Cube, a mini spacecraft designed by the Italian space agency that detached from DART 15 days before the conclusion of the mission in order to do a separate flyby while snapping pictures. Ground-based observatories in Chile, South Africa, and Arizona also monitored the collision. In addition, both the Hubble and the JWST imaged rays 
or a comet-like tail extending from the asteroid, confirming that it caused rocky debris to fly off of the surface. And so, interestingly, the object was so small and so far away that astronomers were initially unsure whether it would be a solid sphere or a loose dust ball that they would basically plow through. But when they were finally able to see up-close pictures, it turned out to be a bumpy, vaguely oval rock with boulders strewn across the surface. It looked kind of like a prickly pear fruit, um, if you've ever seen those with lots of little uh, dimples on it. Um, and so the team had used transit data from before and after the asteroid impact by DART in order to measure the orbital period. So this is kind of basically the same method used to track exoplanets around distant stars. You basically measure the dip in light from an object when another object comes between the initial object and the observer. And so whenever Dimorphos eclipsed Didymus, the brightness decreased by around 10%. And while this has been more successful than we could have hoped for, NASA scientists, including Glaze and Dark Coordination lead Nancy Shabbat, wanted to make it clear that this is just the first in a step, first step in a proof of concept. If we really want to deflect an object from hitting Earth, ideally we'd want it to be as far away as possible, but that makes imaging it all quite a challenge. NASA would ideally like the object to be around a decade or more away in order for a small nudge to translate into a wide berth that would clear Earth's orbit. The next steps are to continue to study the Lycia cube and telescope images to discover how the impact affected the asteroid by measuring the mass and direction of ejecta in order to try and calculate the amount of energy that was dissipated in moving the rock versus ejecting bits of it into space. The team also wants to see if there have been changes to the orbit of the asteroid. They'll especially be looking for a wobble in either the asteroid itself or its orbit. More close observation of the object will hopefully take place when the European Space Agency's HERA probe rendezvous with the pair in late 2026. Right now, that mission is expected to lift off in October of 2024. And NASA still needs to complete an inventory of dangerous near-Earth objects that are the size of Dimorphos and larger. Aiding that work will be NASA's near-Earth object surveyor that is slated to launch in 2026. For the moment, NASA is taking a moment to celebrate a job well done. All of us have a responsibility to protect our home planet. After all, it's the only one we have, Nelson said. This mission shows that NASA is trying to be ready for whatever the universe throws at us. And so, yeah, that is super exciting. Obviously, it is not uh, a true uh, proof of concept in its entirety that we can definitely save ourselves from um, an impact with a uh, world-killing asteroid, but it's a good start. Uh, it's certainly a good start for 
our ability to be able to actually not have to deal with um, a giant space rock hitting the earth and probably wiping out most of the uh, life on the planet, including probably humans. Uh, Let's be honest. Uh, I don't think that we would be prepared to weather a uh, giant impact strike. So the best way to do that to survive is to avoid that happening in the first place. And so hopefully we will be able to do that. Um, insert reference to Armageddon here. <laughs> um, anyways, <laughs> the next story is actually a bit of in case you missed it, but I hope that you'll indulge me because it's pretty interesting. You may have noticed that I am a bit of a NASA stan, and it might be, uh, probably is because I watch a lot of uh, debunking of flat earth doofuses, and they're constantly talking about how NASA is evil and wasting money. And, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. And so a normal person should find it pretty hard not to be impressed with the work that has come out of NASA. Now, though, though obviously there have been some real tragedies and accidents, um, because, as is often uh, noted, space is hard. Even today, we consistently have uh, rockets that explode, rockets that fail to get off the ground. Um, I can't remember somewhere, um, I think it might have been South Korea just had to, um, or China, I can't remember which one just had to self-destruct a um, rocket full of satellites, very expensive satellites, because the launch went wrong. But again, there have been huge wins. And one of the big, huge wins for NASA uh, that continues to keep giving us great data are the Voyager spacecrafts. And so the Voyager spacecrafts were launched in the summer of 1977, which means that they've been in space longer than I've been alive. Um, so that's pretty mind blowing. And they're still returning data to NASA. Voyager 1 is now the most distant man made object in space. It's over 14 billion miles from Earth, and earlier this year started to send somewhat garbled telemetry data. At the end of August, NASA engineers were able to figure out why this was happening. It turned out that the spaceship's Attitude Articulation and Control System, which is data that controls the spacecraft's orientation, uh, was having issues. The spacecraft was sending NASA values for its location and orientation that were impossible given what we knew about where Voyager 1 was. Otherwise, though, the craft was working fine, as was Voyager 2, which was not having any issues. The spacecraft are both almost 45 years old, which is far beyond what the mission planners anticipated. We're also in interstellar space, a high-radiation environment that no spacecraft have flown in before, said Suzanne Dodd, Voyager's project manager, when the issue first emerged. A mystery like this is sort of par for the course at this stage of the Voyager mission. 
Now, NASA engineers realized that the telemetry was being routed through a faulty computer, which was corrupting the data before it could be transmitted back to Earth. The Voyager 1 team was able to correct the problem and get the telemetry data routing again through the proper computer. They're not sure why things got mixed up, but the good news is they were able to fix it. We're happy to have the telemetry back, Dodd said in a NASA JPL release. We'll do a full memory readout of the AACS and look at everything it's been doing. That will help us try to diagnose the problem that caused the telemetry issue in the first place. And so NASA hopes that the spacecraft will continue to send back useful data into 2025 when it will unfortunately run out of power. And so currently four of its original 11 instruments are still active and giving us information about interstellar space, which Voyager 1 has been cruising through for the last 10 years. Unfortunately, NASA now has another headache. NASA's Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite entered into safe mode on Monday, October 10th, and the researchers think that the onboard flight computer reset, but note that science data that has been collected up to this point uh, has not, but had not yet been sent to Earth, has been safely stored in the craft's memory. Recovery procedures and investigations are underway to resume normal operations, which could take several days, NASA wrote in a statement. TESS was launched in 2018 and has been our main source of finding exoplanets as of late. Using the transit method again, TESS has allowed researchers and citizen scientists to confirm more than 250 exoplanets already and has thousands of candidates still awaiting confirmation. TESS was originally slated for, again, just a two-year mission, but as with all of these other great NASA spacecraft, uh, has outlived its original timeline. TESS is a follow-up to the successful Kepler mission that allowed for the discovery of more than 2,600 exoplanets in almost 10 years of operation. So hopefully we will be able to get it back on track very soon. But to bring the uh, stories back into the win column, NASA was able to regain control of the capstone probe, which is on its way to an elliptical halo orbit around the moon. This time, it was a thruster with a partially opened valve that was causing the issue. Commands were sent to fix the problem last Friday, and the probe continues on its way to the moon. Capstone stands for Cislunar Autonomous Positioning System Technology Operations and Navigation Experiment. The craft started having issues on September 8th after its third course correction the craft lost control of its axial position and began to tumble. The CubeSat's propellant and propulsion systems were maintained, but it wasn't able to properly orient its solar panels to retain full power, which is, of course, a big deal when that is your real uh, source of power is 
those solar panels. The craft was repaired by Advanced Space, a contractor with NASA in conjunction with Terran Orbital, who designed and built Capstone. This is a major accomplishment for the mission team and positions the mission well for upcoming critical activities and arrival at the moon, said Advanced Space. The spacecraft is on target to reach its orbit on November 13th. And so that is one of the sort of first stepping stones for getting the Artemis mission off the ground and getting... um getting us towards being able to go back to the moon, potentially have a space station at the moon, uh, do all sorts of fun things at the moon and, you know, actually go back to the moon so that maybe some people will actually change their mind about whether or not uh, we've actually gone to the moon. Probably not because uh, we all know about the psychology of uh, conspiracy theories and that it's very hard to convince someone uh, to change their mind once they've made up their mind, unfortunately, but uh, yeah. And so just in case there's any uh, doubt, we did go to the moon, I promise, I swear. You can look at the mirrors that we left on the moon. You can, with a pretty good uh, telescope, you can see some of the landing places. Um, yeah. Anyways, we're not, we're not doing moon landing tonight today. <laughs> Uh, let us move on. And so NASA is also gearing up for future missions like the one to recover samples from Perseverance on Mars. And one of the ways that they're doing that is by running tests on materials that might better protect crafts from micrometeoroids. These can be as small as specks of dust or grains of sand, but they travel at enormous speeds in space and can be devastating for spacecraft. You've probably have heard about the micrometeorite impacts that have already affected the JWST, uh, though luckily they haven't done uh, enough damage to actually um, to actually make the telescope have any kind of issues in its mirrors. And so NASA is running tests at a remote facility in New Mexico. And so, of course, this is another place that's like steeped in conspiracy theories. Uh, it seems to be a theme. Anyways, NASA White Sands is a remote test facility that the agency uses for some of the more dangerous testing that is needed to support the NASA missions, said Marcus Sandy, a manager at the White Sands test facility in New Mexico. In a video, NASA engineers at the remote hypervelocity test laboratory at White Sands are using a 225-foot-long gun that is pressurized with hydrogen gas and can shoot small pellets through a vacuum at speeds of up to 22,000 feet per second. For context, an object moving at that speed could travel between New York and San Francisco in around five minutes. NASA reported that they spent three days setting up for a one-second test that was meant to simulate an actual micrometeorite impact on a spacecraft. The goal here is to see how well those materials withstand those impacts to make sure that we don't lose containment of our sample, said Russ Stein, a NASA product design lead specialist for the Mars sample return mission. 
Despite the fast speeds of the pellets, they are still six times slower than actual micrometeorites, which travel at around 50 miles per second. It's vitally important that NASA find materials that can withstand these impacts in order to assure the safety of future missions. So, um, or at least ways in which to mitigate it. Uh, you might not be able to do it by brute force, but you might be able to develop um, technologies that will then uh, immediately fill a gap or something like that in order to prevent loss of containment. Um, so yeah, so NASA's pretty awesome. I've talked a lot about how cool they are. And so now I want to take a minute to uh, complain. <laughs> I hope that you will indulge me, um, but I read about this and it just made me very sad. Um, and I know that I'm probably overreacting to this, but um, I hope some of you will understand why I'm annoyed about this. And so uh, apparently NASA is planning on allowing Tom Cruise to film part of a movie on the ISS and let him do a spacewalk. Besides the other, besides the obvious issue with supporting a member of Scientology in any way, shape, or form, um, just just say no to Scientology. Um, <laughs> they are, uh, in my opinion, uh, basically just a terrorist cult. Um, and uh, yeah. Um, Anyways, we're not going to talk about Scientology uh, on tonight's program for more than a second. I just in general don't think we should be wasting resources on what is basically a publicity stunt. Plenty of big budget Hollywood films have made successful movies about space without actually sending any actors into space. We've gotten really good at CGI. It's half the reason why people think that we haven't gone to the moon because they think the CGI is so good that we could fake having been in space. Um, and it's also a side issue of the, frankly, to me, abhorrent practice of the privatization of space and spaceflight. Allowing capitalism to pollute space is just about the worst thing that we could do. Um, I know I'm kind of shouting into the abyss here, but it still makes me very angry to think about billionaires being able to build rockets and potentially convince people to let them do things like mine the moon for their personal gain and not for the benefit of all people. Now, I know this hasn't happened yet, and I know that there are technically treaties, but uh, sometimes I'm pretty sure we live in the darkest timeline. And so uh, um, I've also read a lot of sci-fi books in my life, so um, the dystopian future seems ever closer these days. Um, I also read a article... Um, I think in China or Japan, I'm sorry, I don't remember where, but somewhere they tested out uh, basically uh, a swarm of satellites that uh, were in formation for a symbol for some kind of brand and were basically like, look, we could do advertising in space. And I was like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. Luckily, cooler heads have prevailed and no one has made any uh, interest in actually doing that yet. And I think that 
the government was pretty uh, much on the side of no. Um, but yeah, just all of that sort of thing is so disconcerting and so demoralizing to me. Um, but yeah. All right. On that note, <laughs> we're going to take a break and do some show promos and some PSAs. And when we come back, we're going to shift gears and talk about animals. All right. So please do stay tuned for uh, the show promos and continue listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton, so come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back, and you are still listening to Evidence-Based Radio. 
And as promised, we are going to switch from talking about space to talking about various kinds of animals. And so the first thing I wanted to talk about are stickleback fish. And these are really common fish. They're all over the place. And so they are already a great research tool um, for evolution. But this is some really cool work that's been done to confirm a version of evolution that has been, um, you know, in debate for a long time. Researchers at Stanford Medicine used crossbreeding, CRISPR, and various sampling locations to confirm a long-standing but unproven hypothesis concerning natural evolution. It also further debunks the idea of irreducible complexity or intelligent design and the idea that naturally occurring naturally occurring mutations only damage organisms and never lead to useful new traits or body structures. The researchers found that sticklebacks developed mutations in Hox genes that lead to variability in their defensive scales. New spine traits actually help them better adapt and avoid predation, countering the anti-evolution idea that any major change in gene function will inevitably lead to the death of a species. Scientists already know that changes in the regulation of this gene, called Hawks, control the development of major body structures during development, said David Kingsley, PhD, Professor of Developmental Biology. What's new is that we conclusively show that mutations in this gene produce major changes in wild animals, new features that help fish thrive in natural environments. Our findings refute the common argument that these types of genes are so important, so fundamental, that animals with mutations in these regions wouldn't survive in nature, that if you play with master regulators, you're only going to make a hopeless monster. And so Kingsley is the senior author of the paper published in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution, outlining the research. The lead author of the paper is Julia Wucherpfing, Wucherpfening, sorry, I, as you, as regular viewers, listeners know, uh, I am really bad at names and I feel so bad about it. Um, I'm going to say it's Wucherpfenig. And so uh, she is a graduate student at Stanford. And so sticklebacks are an example of progressive evolution where organisms acquire new traits that allow them to outcompete and thus outbreed their less genetically, um, their sort of lesser genetically uh, adapted peers. But of course, any major change to a gene can have disastrous effects. The question really was, could they also have serious advantageous effects? The Hawks region is especially prone to detrimental mutations, with only a few examples of beneficial mutations previously known. Laboratory-bred four-winged fruit flies are a famous example of how relatively simple genetic alterations in regulatory regions of the Hawks gene can dramatically change the body shape of an animal, Kingsley said. But because these flies can't survive in the wild, anti-evolution proponents have seized on them, 
not as good examples of how genes drive evolution, but as proof that gene changes can only make animals less functional. Small stickleback fish are a great research tool because they evolve rapidly to change. Fish in ponds with fish-eating insects tend to have fewer and smaller spines to reduce the likelihood that they'll be grabbed. Sticklebacks are real small. They're usually, um, I think, two to three uh, inches, um, if I remember right. Sorry, I didn't uh, remember to note it specifically, but they're pretty small, uh, which is why they can be attacked by uh, insects. And fish in ponds with larger fish or birds that eat smaller fish will have more and longer spines in order to irritate animals trying to swallow them. Fish that live in kelp forests and other underwater vegetation want to be nimble and flexible, while those in the open ocean want sort of plate armor and formidable spines to make themselves uh, less likely to be predated. The lab began by crossing a two-spined female stickleback taken from a freshwater lake in British Columbia with a three-spined male stickleback taken from Bodega Bay, California, and thus a saltwater species. So they're also able to, um, you know, thrive in both fresh and uh, salt water. So they're pretty, they're pretty ubiquitous fish. They then continued to crossbreed the offspring of this pair and carefully recorded the number and shape of their spines. Most of the 590 fish of the third generation had three spines, but six of them had only two spines and 21 had four spines. And so they had basically developed a new configuration for these uh, spines. Genetic testing revealed that the different fish had variations in the region around the HOX-DB gene. Butcher-Fenning took up the task at this point and continued to cross stickleback from across North America from various freshwater and seawater locations with varying spines and spine architecture. She then used CRISPR, which is, of course, the gene editing tool um, that allows you to do precise genetic um, splicing and cutting of the genes. Um, she used CRISPR to confirm that the variation was indeed being controlled by gene variation in the HOXDB gene. Um, and so these changes led to major anatomical changes that were evolving by selection pressures to alter defensive armor of the fish. In Nova Scotia, some of the stickleback populations have evolved to have five or even six spines, Kingsley said. Nature left the coding region of this gene intact, but altered how and when it is expressed during normal development to add structures rather than stripping them away. And fish with these new structures are thriving in a completely wild environment subject to a whole range of environmental pressures. Usher Fennig and colleagues found that repeated changes in regulatory regions of the HoxDB gene are responsible for the evolution of new spine patterns in two species from North America. 
that were part of the study. Their next task is to see whether similar changes affect more distantly related species. Are there predictable rules that govern evolutionary change, Kingsley said? Are natural species using the same trick over and over, or do they have to invent a new trick each time? So far, it's been the same gene, even in these very divergent sticklebacks from different environments. Here we show that nature routinely adds major structures to generate animals that are more suited to the environment and that it does so repeatedly using the same master regulatory gene. It's a decisive argument for progressive evolution, which has been debated in academic and non-academic circles for decades. So you may have noticed um, during that whole time, I couldn't find any uh, quotes from um, my... uh, (laughs) from the postdoctoral student whose name I am not going to try and pronounce one more time just because uh, I think that I've done it enough. Um, And that that made me sad. Um, I think it's really unfortunate that uh, even in when you're looking for commentary, it's often, you know, the head of the lab that gets to do all of the talking. And um, You know, I just wanted to note that because it was so jarring that, you know, it was her doctoral paper that they were, that they were, you know, talking about. She had been, uh, you know, the main person on this research. But of course, all of the, um, you know, quotes are from the head of the lab. And unfortunately, that's just kind of a thing in science. But I felt like this one was really, really uh, noticeable. So I did want to make a comment about it that I did try and find, um, you know, her talking about it. I even went to her Twitter and there's just a couple of little like, hooray, my paper got published. No like actual uh, quotes other than that. So um, yeah, I did try. Um, But unfortunately, I just wasn't able to get anywhere. All right, so let's move on um, and talk about research from France. And so researchers from the National Research Institute for Agriculture, Food, and Environment, or INRAE, and the National Center for Scientific Research, CNS, CNRS in France, have found that the genome of a major crop pest from the tropics and subtropics, the silverleaf whitefly, has 49 plant genes that have transferred into the insect's genome. This is the largest number of transfers between plants and insects yet discovered and could have important implications for pest control methods, which could potentially reduce pesticide use. Florian Maumus from INRAE and Clement Gilbert from CNRS were intrigued by recent studies from 2020 and 2021 that showed the transfer of two plant genomes into two plant genes into the genome of the silverleaf whitefly, which allowed the pest to neutralize certain toxins produced by plants as a defense against insect predation. They then decided to study the genome of the insect, which was completed in 2016. 
the researchers used bioinformatic analysis to identify 49 plant genes from 24 independent horizontal gene transfer events. Most of them show signs of functionality, which means they are actually used by the insect's genome to affect the organism in some way, and they also have sequences with signs of evolutionary pressure, and so quite possibly play an important role in the insects. The researchers also identified that most of the genes they found, including those that produce enzymes to break down the cell walls of plants, play a role in the arms race between plants and pests. All this suggests natural selection of plant genes in insects and a possible reason for why the white fly has been able to adapt to targeting a wide range of plant species. Now, all of these gene transfers are several million years old, and the origin and mechanism of their transfer is yet unknown. But one of the really cool things about this, again, is that it could be a really great pathway to discover of discovery that could lead to better and less invasive crop protection methods. And so I did want to bring it up because it's really kind of an exciting uh, place of research. And so if you can uh, find ways to develop plants that have different mechanisms from the ones that these insects are able to exploit, then you can create plants that simply aren't exploitable anymore by these insects rather than having to put on other inputs uh, that are potentially damaging to the environment at large in order to control the pests. So, um, I mean, I think that's one of the huge goals and promises of genetic engineering is to reduce the use of pesticides outside of the plant and really be able to uh, boost the plant's defenses for itself. Okay, so now I want to switch back to evolutionary changes for defense, um, because that's kind of evolutionary changes for offense in order to use the plant's own genes against it. Uh, And so apparently... Eastern tree frogs in the Chernobyl exclusion zone have been moving toward having black rather than bright green skin. A study published on August 29th in Evolutionary Applications found that frogs with more melanin were most likely to survive the 1986 nuclear contamination of the area of of this area of the Ukraine and therefore today's populations have a larger percentage of darker frogs. Sorry, Ukraine. Just Ukraine. Radiation can damage the genetic material of living organisms and generate undesirable mutations, researchers wrote in a post on the conversation about their research. However, one of the most interesting research topics in Chernobyl is trying to detect if some species are actually adapting to live with radiation. As with other pollutants, radiation could be a very strong selective factor, favoring organisms with mechanisms that increase their survival 
in areas contaminated with radioactive substances. The researchers led by Pablo Baracco, a biologist with the Doñana Biological Station in Seville, Spain, studied more than 200 male frogs from the area around 12 different breeding grounds located throughout the exclusion zone. They found that, on average, 44% were darker than those outside of Chernobyl, Barco noted. We considered the most plausible explanation to why frogs within the Chernobyl exclusion zone are changing color is that the extremely high radiation levels at the moment of the accident selected for frogs with dark skin. It turns out that melanin is a pretty good protector for all kinds of radiation, not just UV. Melanin is known to protect against radiation because it can mechanically avoid the production of free radicals caused by the direct impact of the radioactive particles on cells, Baracco said. Radiation can induce oxidative stress and damage essential structures for life, such as the membrane of cells or even DNA. The researchers then looked to see if there were any negative effects of having darker skin. It seems that these frogs are able to sustain darker skin without other consequences. The production of melanin can be metabolically costly. This has been described, for example, in several bird species, Burroco said. However, in frogs, the main melanin pigment is called eumelanin, and its production seems not to incur in physiological costs. So that's pretty cool. They have learned to, well, not learned, they have found a way in which part of the natural variation can actually confer a serious evolutionary benefit. And so that is pretty cool. I had no idea that melanin could protect you from uh, the kind of ionizing radiation that would have been present and is still present in uh, the Chernobyl exclusion zone. Um, I do love the fact, though, that it has kind of become a natural uh, reserve for animals, even though, um, you know, there are these changes to them. A lot of them do seem to still be thriving, and it's just a really cool place um, to have this kind of um, workshop for being able to learn more about these kind of evolutionary changes because, um, you know, it's it's kind of one of those uh, making lemonade from lemonades kind of things because obviously the Chernobyl disaster was just that. It was a disaster and it's still affecting people to this day and um, it's still really awful and it's, you know, I think been on a lot of people's minds as of late, given the fact that other nuclear plants in the area have had a lot of fighting uh, around them and there was even fighting around Chernobyl itself. And um, I haven't read a ton about it, but I know that some of the soldiers um, who had been uh, 
stationed around Chernobyl uh, felt like they had actually been exposed to more radiation than they should have been allowed to be, uh, which is terrible. Um, you definitely uh, don't want to be endangering your own soldiers that way. Um, not that any of those soldiers should have to be there at the moment, um, because, you know, Again, this is not a politics show, but obviously I uh, am pro the sovereignty of Ukraine and uh, its territorial borders um, because that just seems like common sense. And also uh, the alternative is pretty terrible. Um, anyways, let's let's move on and talk about penguins. <laughs> totally non-political penguins. <laughs> um, and so researchers have been studying a little-known penguin species and have uh, noticed that they have a particular odd behavior. New Zealand erect-crested penguins mate in monogamous pairs, but when it comes time to lay their eggs, they consistently abandon the first egg they lay and only incubate their second egg. Now, laying eggs is energetically costly, so it's been a mystery as to why this happens. A study published October 12th in PLOS One suggests an answer to this mystery. Researchers from the University of Otago found that the first egg is sacrificed almost certainly in order to give the second egg a chance to successfully hatch, as there is not enough food and energy to raise two chicks in the environment in which they live. They compared eggs from a colony of 158 penguins who generally laid their eggs five days apart. The second eggs were much larger than the first eggs, and the difference in size between the two, of, the two is the largest of any bird species, Lloyd Davis, the study's lead author and a professor in the Department of Science Communication at the University of Otago, told Live Science. In most birds, the clutch of eggs gets smaller as they're laid, but in this case, the second egg is on average 85% larger than the first one. This is a really crazy evolutionary uh, weirdness, I have to say. I've never heard of such a thing. Um, Apparently, the only other uh, species that does this sort of uh, behavior is another uh, species of penguin. And so Davis and his team have been studying these penguins since 1998. They spend around two, they've spent around 250 hours observing the penguins and their eggs on the Bounty and Antipodes Islands where they breed. We noticed that about 45% of the penguins don't even bother incubating their first egg. They just look at it after it's laid, Davis said. Most penguin species will make nests with stones, sticks, and grasses, but over 90% of erect-crested penguins lay their eggs on a rocky platform, which is not exactly level, and the eggs tend to roll off it. Researchers tried to create rings of stone around the outcrops to keep the eggs from rolling off, but the birds still ignored the first egg. 
Not only did they discover insight into this mystery, they also found answers to another mystery, why the male penguins are, frankly, pretty chill rather than aggressive during this time period. The researchers collected blood samples and found unusual levels of testosterone in the birds. Normally, you would expect the males to have higher testosterone levels at the start of the breeding period, while females' levels would be lower. But we found something different, David said. The males had lower, low testosterone, while the females' levels were at least as high, or probably higher than the males, especially during the laying of their eggs. Now, even with these new insights, these quote-unquote forgotten penguins are still enigmatic as their habitat is so remote. But unfortunately, even though they're not under pressure from human encroachment on their actual, you know, tiny little rocky islands, they are not uh, immune from the threat of climate change. And so this definitely uh, is important in trying to be able to understand them better in order to then be able to help them survive as they continue to try and uh, hang on in these very, uh, you know, kind of uh, precarious islands on which they live. Um, and of course, penguins across uh, the world are also uh not doing great. Lots of penguin populations have collapsed. And uh, unfortunately, penguins live in a place where climate change is uh, really going to hit hard uh, and fast. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't know what we're going to do. I fear that we're going to do nothing and things are just going to keep getting worse. um, Because there just does not seem to be any will to care about the fact that we are literally destroying the planet and are literally making it inhospitable to not only animals, but ourselves as well. And um, I'm not sure how we solve that problem. There have been so many things that have happened already that I've thought, surely this is what will make people snap out of it and start to actually understand that we need to be doing more. Um, but we just haven't. And I think that there has been such a good job, uh, such a terrible and evil good job of corporations and governments trying to make it seem like it's ordinary citizens who need to do, uh, to need to change, need to make uh, changes to their lives when it's really mostly just absolute, absolute corporate greed and malfeasance that causes the vast majority of pollution and uh, impact to the environment. And of course, it often happens in areas where people are uh, don't have a lot of resources. Uh, so obviously, you're not going to uh, build a nuclear power plant next to a bunch of mansions. 
and you're not going to build a manufacturing plant that uh, dumps uh, raw waste into a river uh, upstream from a bunch of mansions. You're going to do it upstream from uh, areas that are poor and depressed and don't have the resources in order to fight giant corporations. And so again, I don't have any solutions. I fear I'm sorry. Um, I sincerely wish I did, but, um, I just, uh, I try and make this a, a happy place where we don't have to think about these things, but it's getting, it's getting harder and I apologize, but I hope that we can continue to keep fighting and keep, uh, mostly focusing on the good that science can do because science can do a lot of good. And, um, I just always want to be able to share that with people that science can come up with cures. It can figure out weird mysteries about the world. It can allow us to send a spacecraft into interstellar space. And that is just the cool stuff that um this show is predicated upon and so yeah all right that is enough soapboxing for me for one night uh you have been listening to evidence-based radio evidence-based radio is a member of the planetside podcast network to learn more go to planetsidepodcasts.com the theme song is widgen by bird boy Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.